Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game-based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. Minicoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out Minicoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash Minicoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is Suzanne Sherman, whom many of you may know as the Red Hot Chili Prepper. She was raised in California, and having spent most of her life there, she moved to Utah to live a life of preparedness and self-reliance. And of course, we've had Suzanne on the show before, and I'll link to that previous appearance. But what you may not know about Suzanne is she's also a recovering attorney, licensed to practice in California for several years before deciding to move to Utah. And she's done a lot of writing on the Constitution. She's got a lot to say about today's subject, which is immigration and particularly the debate amongst libertarians on the immigration issue. So, Suzanne, welcome to the show. Tom, it's great to be back. Thank you. We've got a lot of people arguing about kind of the philosophical aspects of this from a libertarian perspective, which is, are any borders valid other than private property borders? And it seems like the debate has fallen into, should the federal government regulate immigration or should we have completely open borders? And there's another alternative, and it might be a lot more consistent with the Constitution, which is states regulating immigration. That's actually how it all started. Yeah, absolutely. And I listened to that same debate. I thought it was very well done. And you and I came to the same conclusion that there's a gaping hole in this argument because it seemed like the only two options were that the federal government was going to control immigration or that it would be completely privatized. And I thought, well, wait a minute, if you want to talk about this from a constitutional perspective, and they never mentioned that, as far as I remember, um, the way I address this, because a lot of people talk about the power of the federal government to regulate immigration, I look for it. Article 1, Section 8, it's not there. You can see Article 1, Section 8, Clause 4 mentions naturalization, but nobody's asking about this. And we understand that the powers that were that the federal government has were initially delegated by the states and those that remained and those that were never delegated remained with the states. And that's, that's codified in the 10th Amendment. 
I don't think a lot of people realize that the states actually were actively regulating immigration. In fact, the whole way that this fell into the federal government's lap was a Supreme Court case named Chai Long versus Freeman. There were several, but I think that's the one where they determined that this is the federal government's power. I gave the English majors... (laughs) (laughs) review of it a couple years ago and concluded with Madison and Jefferson on my side that this power wasn't in the Constitution. Did you have a chance to look at that case and form any opinions yourself? Yeah. And what's interesting here is this power, first of all, take note of the date. 1886. What had happened in that country, in this country, to significantly or to completely, I should say, invert the system of federalism that was consented to by the states? As we know, as of 1865, the states lost their power and the federal government took over. So interestingly enough, this case ruled in favor of the federal government having the uh, authority to regulate immigration. And this came about as what they said that was the embarrassment of the results of Chinese immigration. Now, what they meant by that, I don't know. Panda Express came to mind. Well, the thing that struck me, unless you found something different, is they never make an argument for it being in the Constitution. Maybe they mentioned naturalization, which is completely spurious, but they mainly argue, look, this must be the federal government's power because if it wasn't, it would be really bad. You know, some state could get us into a war, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's all they say. Now, if you buy the arguments that it would be bad for this to be a state power, Well, okay, that doesn't say that it was given to the federal government. It just says maybe we ought to give it to the federal government. There's no evidence this was ever done. Well, you have to remember, too, the system the states consented to was where they retained authority and control over the internal mechanisms, social structure, and prosperity within the states, within their borders. So taking that into mind, considering that the 13 sovereign and independent states on a par with England and France and Spain, for instance, all of a sudden now surrendered their sovereignty with regards to their territorial borders when they consented to this general form of government. And there is no historic background for that. In fact, as the as as stated in there, naturalization is listed, but not immigration. And then the argument we see now is, well, they have to immigrate before they can be naturalized. Therefore, we have this power. And interestingly, in the article that we were discussing that was uh, going and analyzing this case, they bring up um, powers such as plenary powers, meaning that these powers uh, exist and they cannot be argued. So this is this is nothing more than the Supreme Court saying the general government has this power. Never mind, it was never delegated. And that's what I find problematic of this case. And this is something we see historically now. It goes back to something like the supremacy clause. And it's like, well, look, you can't just point to these general statements and and words in the Constitution and not invalidate the whole reason for having Article 1, Section 8. Or I don't know if that's a great way to put it, but in other words, you wouldn't need Article 1, Section 8 if some of these other things like general welfare or supremacy clause just granted the government to do whatever it wanted. 
Commerce Clause, we're seeing the impact of that on a daily basis, you know, where, oh, well, they can sell raw meat or uh, raw, raw milk, but it can't cross state lines. So, you know, it's, it's become a clause that was intended to keep trade regular um, to one that says, well, if, if a product crosses state lines, then the federal government has authority to regulate it. And that was never the intention. When pressed, and especially if I'm in an argument with conservatives about this, I'll say, well, the federal government doesn't really have this power. Of course they do, the naturalization. And I think that's a pretty easy one to get around because obviously not everybody who crosses a border intends to become a citizen. I've crossed many borders in my life. I've never even thought about becoming a citizen of another country. But let me run a different one by you. And this one I think is a little more troublesome, and that's the 1808 Clause which says that the Congress won't pass a law regulating either the migration or the importation of people into the states before 1808. That's funny. Why would they write that if the power wasn't in there somewhere to begin with? And it's not there. And the interesting thing is, I think you and I had this discussion on one of my shows where you said, because they're taking this like it is a right the general government has. And I think you used the example of, well, if you tell your kids they can't go to the movies on certain nights, that means they can. Do you remember that conversation we had? Yeah, it sounds like something I would say. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if that applies legally or constitutionally, but it's like, yeah, if I tell Junior, Junior, you're not allowed to go to the movies on Wednesday night. Junior would say, okay, it's Tuesday. I'm going to the movies, but it doesn't work that way with the constitution. So I guess my question is, they put this thing in there that says you can't do something before 1808 and they don't have anywhere else where you can do it after 1808. So what do we make of that clause? Was it just a mistake? Thomas Jefferson in 1798 said they just put it in there out of abundant caution, but I think it kind of does throw a monkey wrench in the works. Well, and that's where we discussed this was the difference between powers versus rights. And as we know, governments don't have rights, they have powers, and those powers must be delegated and enumerated. And simply because they were prevented from interfering with that up until that time, they had 20 years, does not mean that it was still delegated. If they wanted to have that power after, then is the time to have the discussions to amend the Constitution. And if the states by three-fourths majority ratify it, then they would have the power to regulate immigration. And as far as I know, Tom, there's no constitutional amendment saying so. No, I agree with you there. I, I just think that the clause is troublesome. And sometimes we try to say, well, it's just about slavery, but then you've got the words migration or importation. So I'm trying to give the benefit of the doubt as far as I can. I, I've got another theory, but anything else on that clause that you, you could make of it other than it's just sitting there and you, you've just got to fall back on the 10th Amendment here? Or? I think, like you said, it's one of those clauses that's problematic, that has opened the door for egregious overreach, much like Commerce Clause, General Welfare Clause, Supremacy Clause. Another one we don't talk about often is in Article 2, the powers of the executive, one of which is they can propose policies to Congress. And in my opinion, that's evolved into what we're seeing today is the president's platform to lead this nation. And 
that takes us directly to immigration. So a lot of people that were complaining about President Obama bringing in people from across the Mexican border and busing them everywhere in the middle of the night, dropping them around the country. And I made the argument that they were even weaponized to go into certain districts where there is political opposition. Well, when Trump was elected, then he started building that wall and we didn't see as many of these people. I noticed that in Evanston, Wyoming, when I go shopping and I thought, wow. And it's not that I was saying, wow, this is great. There are fewer Mexicans. I thought, wow, this is different. But did I ever think that those people had detracted from my shopping or living experience? Absolutely not. Now we've come back to Biden, who's doing what Obama did. But nobody learned anything from that. They still keep gravitating towards this notion that the general government, the federal government, has the authority to regulate this, but they have no answer for what happens when the administration with whom they agree or disagree comes into power. What's going to happen with the change? The way to safeguard this is to decentralize immigration and then get rid of, and this is one of the things that Dave had that he said was, look, when we have this welfare state in combination with open immigration that we're seeing right now, then we have these problems. I mean, it's, it's, there are many levels to this, but again, the the assumption that we have this plenary power, and this is what they mentioned in that article, it's the absolute power to take action on a particular issue, no limitations. And that is where we have come with federal immigration. The states don't have the power to regulate their own borders. And just for the record, I just looked, the word plenary is nowhere in the Constitution, just in right. case anyone's wondering about that, too. Right. Neither is implied. <laughs> right, right. And really, uh, that's the only way you can get to the federal government having this, if, if it's some kind of implied power. But I think the bank that Jefferson went to the mattress with Hamilton over being unconstitutional, if you're going to do the implied powers thing, and that's where Hamilton did it, you're holding more cards for a national bank than you are for immigration because it's just nowhere in there. I mean, there's just nothing you can grab onto, I guess, other than naturalization and that clause. Let's take a short break for this important message. Most people consider it a fact of life that prices are going to go up over time and they've never gone up as fast as they are right now. But what if I told you it wasn't always like that? That for over 100 years, prices went down in America even as the economy became more productive. Well, it's true. And as much as we like to blame the president when the economy is bad, presidents really have very little effect on our modern economy. The real culprit behind not only price inflation, but the constant booms and busts we suffer is the Federal Reserve System. My new book, It's the Fed, Stupid, is an appeal to Americans across the political spectrum to stop focusing on things that don't make a difference and start focusing on what does. Whether you're worried about constantly rising prices, wage stagnation, increasing wealth and income inequality, or the massive expansion of the government's size and power, they can all be traced back to an institution the powerful would prefer you ignored. Download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com and find out what you should really be fighting against. And now, back to our episode. You were 
I have a Mullen theory about the 1808 clause. I'll, I'll run it by you. You could tell me what you think. And this extends to the Bill of Rights, too. I think Madison was a great guy in some ways. He certainly was an honorable guy in that he went to the Constitutional Convention hoping for the same things as Hamilton, the same kind of result. And he didn't get it. And unlike Hamilton, who tried to weasel his way and get it going around the Constitution, Madison just said, okay, I tried, but this is what they voted on. And I'm now going to become a Republican with Jefferson. That's how much I think it's important to stick to consent of the governed and the Constitution that was actually ratified. Would you agree with that so far? Wholeheartedly. I mean, he went so far into Federalist 39 to assert that the new government proposed was federal as opposed to national in nature. And in 45, he explained how the powers that were delegated were few and defined. Those remaining with the states were numerous. And this is a term that's very important, indefinite indefinite. Nowhere is it, does it have to be written that the states have certain powers other than in the state constitutions. And the state constitutions, remember, the states weren't even mentioned in that podcast that we were listening to. So yeah, I, I agree with what you said. Absolutely. And I'd go one step further because I'm trying to say this was a good guy. He actually had a bill that he originally proposed for the government to build roads. And I have Kevin Goodsman and Tom DiLorenzo on in the past couple of episodes talking about the whole roads thing and the Constitution. But Madison actually vetoed a bill that he proposed. So he became president and he had his allies in Congress and he told them words to the effect of, yeah, I'd like to see this, what we'd call now infrastructure bill pass, but you have to consult the constitution and make sure you have the power. And if you don't, you better propose an amendment. Now he knew that it wasn't in there. So the congressman just blew that statement off and they passed the bill and gave it to him and he vetoed his own bill. So that's how much he thought it was important to stick to the constitution, but he also wrote the darn thing. And I think Madison, you know, some people like to hear themselves talk. I guess I run a talk show, so I can't really throw stones there. But I think Madison loved to read himself right, if you will. And he was so long-winded. And I think he wrote a lot of wiggle room, maybe subconsciously into the Bill of Rights. And I'm wondering if this 1808 clause is the same thing. It's like, look, the power is not in there and I just can't help myself. I'm I'm putting this in because... I know the slave states wanted some protection there. What do you think? There are so many in there, Tom. And look at the Fourth Amendment. No unreasonable searches shall be made without a warrant. Who's going to determine whether or not a search is reasonable? I'll tell you who isn't going to be allowed to make that determination. The person who's being searched. <laughs> the person who's being arrested whose home is being searched, they don't get to determine whether or not it's reasonable. So the government just had a, a just a, a general authority to conduct searches if they deemed they were reasonable, which really isn't a big stretch from the former writs of assistance, if you think about it. Well, I don't want to get too far off the subject, but now I got to ask you this since you brought up the Fourth <laughs> Amendment. I don't think it even requires a warrant. 
That's what I said. No unreasonable searches without a warrant. No, you can have searches without a warrant. Well, let me go further. Maybe you can even have an unreasonable search without a warrant because it doesn't tie warrants to searches. It says the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated and, and no warrant shall issue. Oh, well, okay, you got searches over here, and then you start talking about warrants. I don't see that the warrants even required. You almost have to assume it. I know there was probably a Supreme Court decision that said it was, but what do you think? I don't think this thing even requires a warrant for any search. It's absolutely toothless. And I remember in law school when we were studying all the exceptions to the warrant requirement, it was easier rather than memorizing them all in your head. We just wrote down a, an acronym that was like 20 letters long. And that was your checklist to go through all of those. But anyway, we digress. But that is absolutely just yet another hole in this. And I think it was uh, Albert J. Nock who wrote a book on Jefferson Mises published the article about how the Constitution really wasn't about liberty. It's doing exactly what it was intended to do. And if you look at immigration now, and immigration is always hotly contested in every presidential election cycle, and we have you know diametrically opposed positions on there. So this should go to show exactly why the federal government should not have the exclusive authority, because it's going to get so many people so angry. It was never intended to be this way. And the good news is the states are stepping up on this, just like they did with marijuana, just like they do with some other issues. And I wish they'd do more of it. They're just starting to put their own policies in. Texas is building its own wall. The appropriation is out there. I don't know if it's signed yet or not. Arizona is now putting together a coalition of other states. And it's funny because I read the article about that and they twist themselves in knots trying to find how they should be able to do this because the federal government isn't doing their job. And I'm like, just quote the 10th Amendment. They don't want to let go of this idea that it's a federal thing and the feds aren't doing their job. So we states have to do it. And I guess the other point I would make about this is conservatives they don't like an activist court, right? So they don't like the Supreme Court making law instead of the Congress. And they don't like the Supreme Court usurping powers from the states. Well, if you don't like Roe versus Wade or the gay marriage decision or name your decision you don't like, for a liberal, you don't like the one about the corporations being people, which that's not what it really said. This one for immigration, Chai Lung versus Freeman, is got to be the worst one. It's the least founded in the Constitution of anyone I've ever seen. Well, again, it's just a matter of the federal judiciary and the Supreme Court saying, yeah, we took an oath to uphold and defend the Constitution, but this is the policy outcome that we want because, again, the timing is very suspect. This is in, in the 18, I think, 1886. We all know what happened in that era. And this is where the federal government wasn't going to grant any latitude to the states. I mean, that's my opinion. And they have repeatedly sided with the federal government's um, you know, power to control immigration, the 1965 Immigration Act. Interestingly, when, it, when, and when a piece of legislation is proposed before Congress, there is a clause that shows constitutionality that you have to actually <laughs> fill out I remember reading this when I was writing about the proposed National Concealed Carry Reciprocity Act, and they cited the Second Amendment. 
But if you look at immigration, okay, where are they going to cite the constitutional authority for immigration? It would be interesting to see where that is in the 1965 proposal, if they were even doing it then, because it simply isn't there. To me, I'm, I would guess that they would probably cite that case back in 1886 as their constitutional authority, which tells you case law and constitutional authority are different things. When we have this, when Biden proposed his uh, vaccine mandate, Mike Lee was speaking before, before the Senate saying that there is neither constitutional nor statutory authority for the mandate. Well, that to me was very telling, meaning that he'd accept one or the other when there needs to be both, correct? So what they're saying is if Congress passes a law, the federal government has the authority to carry out the enforcement of the law, whether or not it's constitutional. So I was going to ask also, what did they cite? Did they cite that case for the 1965 law? I didn't read that. I'm wondering if they did cite the Constitution. And that's something you're not seeing on there. So I just remember reading that. And I also remember how they would justify behaviors. I, I use the example of the Controlled Substances Act in the Gonzalez versus Rage case where Antonin Scalia justified their behavior saying, well, this is, in, this is part and parcel of a pre-existing government program, which was the Controlled Substances Act. Please find for me the constitutional authority there. So immigration's become one of the most pressing issues right now at every presidential election for decades but there's no authority for the general government to regulate it. And it's never discussed and they just don't care anymore. Yeah. It's funny. And I just had Kevin Goodsman on today's episode and he was talking about that vaccine mandate decision. And he was actually encouraged because they brought up the non-delegation doctrine. Now this is not a federal versus States issue. This is more separation of powers within the federal government because I originally had him on the very first episode to say, how do we get these agencies writing rules? They're, they're not congressmen. They're not elected. Isn't that legislating? He said, basically, yes, it goes back to the New Deal. And not to recap that whole episode, but they wrote into this decision, they use the words non-delegation doctrine, which on one hand, you say, well, it's already been delegated. You're ruling on something written by bureaucrats. But on the other, I think what he's saying is the green shoot here, if you will, just by bringing this up and starting to work it into decisions, which this was the Gorsuch part, and he's pretty young, that case law that lawyers are trained on, this will start to be ingrained in them, and maybe we can rein in the agencies. But as far as the states go, I think most people would say, oh, my God, you're going to have people at every state line making sure I don't come and go. Not really. That's not how we manage the borders now with the federal government. They can't control people coming over. All they can do is go and arrest somebody who's not here legitimately, in air quotes. So the states could do the same thing. They could certainly do the same thing at airports and ports, because that's what they used to do. Well, they didn't have airports in the 1800s, but you know what I mean. So states could reassume these powers. And then California could be open borders if it wanted, and Arizona could be closed borders if it wanted. 
I think what really frightens people with this concept is they say, well, I'm going to have to show my papers at every state border. And not necessarily. We're not talking about complete and total sovereignty. What we're talking about is, remember, we have Article 4 privileges and immunities where American citizens can travel freely amongst the states and have their, their rights protected as they travel among the states. But as you said, California, if they choose to have an open border with Mexico, then, you know, for me, if you stop the welfare state federally and California, and this is the argument I make in my constitutional solution for the for immigration, is then the state can choose who lives within their territorial borders and be fiscally responsible for them. And then you could so we kind of have layers of an onion. You're first talking about federal immigration, then you talk about state immigration. Then I like to look at also what are the moral, ethical, and economic considerations for immigration and the right to freely associate. So in California, when I lived there, I will I am un, I am absolutely unashamed to say I hired people who were considered undocumented here in violation of federal immigration laws, but they were the best suited for the job. They were the ones that worked the hardest. They were the ones I trusted most. There's no American that is entitled to be employed by me in my private home. Yeah, it's funny that you bring that up because when I lived in Florida, which I lived there from 2004 to 2014, you know, I lived on the East Bay of Tampa Bay. So Ruskin was a big a lot of people that were probably undocumented immigrants and people would bring this up. Oh, the jobs. I'm like, yeah, boy, it's just so sad when I see the strawberry truck pulling away to go to the fields and all those <laughs> white guys in their suits with their resumes are standing there looking dejected all the jobs that those Mexicans took away from them. It's just kind of silly. Some of the arguments sometimes, but to the, to the extent that people care about this and they insist on having a government, something I always recommend against at least have the government you want in Arizona. What in the world does anybody from Massachusetts, like Elizabeth Warren, who lives in Washington, D.C. or in Massachusetts, know about the problems of Arizona? Nothing, right? So it just makes so much sense. It would not, as you said, we're not going to be showing our papers any more than they are in border states. They have checkpoints in border states where you can be stopped and asked to prove you're a citizen. Do I like that? No, but that's what the federal government's doing. And they don't do it very well. I think that's the other thing that we should also just get out there. What is the expectation that the government's ever going to succeed at this? Now, you had Trump in there and you had an all Trumpy Congress, well, mostly Trumpy. They had all three branches of government. They had free reign to do what they wanted. I don't think there's much evidence they stopped people from coming over, you know, and unless they're all dressed the same and carrying weapons, I don't think governments are good at stopping migrations anyway, even if they want to. Yeah. And the other thing, too, is you mentioned, what did Elizabeth Warren know about, you know, the problems that might be happening in Missouri? The same thing happened after the 1934, the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And that was a result of, yes, it was passed constitutionally, but with regards to prohibition, we had the massacre. And as a result of that, the people in Alabama, for instance, were no longer allowed to have weapons that they may have had before because of actions that took place in Chicago. So again, we have this top-down, one-size-fits-all solution that affects and impacts communities differently, especially when it's not needed in those communities. And this is why I think people are so angry right now. We don't have the representation when the Constitution 
was ratified. I think it was one representative for every 35,000. Now we're up to, what is it, over 750,000? And when you write to your representative, they never even see your letters. They don't care. I guess for a final thought for me, it's still on to this idea of, is it even feasible, is for anybody who thinks that it was really a ridiculous thing to try and keep a respiratory virus from spreading with lockdowns or masks or whatever, that the wise rulers in Washington, D.C. were going to come up with some idea that was ever going to even have an effect. A lot of people sympathetic to us and limited government, limited to zero in my case, would say, yeah, it's just ridiculous, right? Well, I think the idea that you're going to keep people from crossing the imaginary line is ridiculous too. It's just never going to happen. It never has happened in history. You kind of have to deal with migrations. That doesn't mean if a gang comes over from Mexico, you can't arrest them for crimes they're committing and you can't kick them out. But there's never going to be a policy that can keep people from coming over such a long border. So why don't we come up with something a little more practical where all these localities deal with it the way they want to? That's my last thought. Do you have one? Yeah. And also, you know, we hear the argument, well, if you want open borders, leave your front door unlocked. And you can't compare somebody's private residence, which is ownership, with regards to something like a national border, which is more of association. In fact, I think you wrote an article about that. Okay. Well, why don't we leave it there for now? I mean, let's just see what happens because we've got all these developments going on. And our boy down there in Florida, about half of whose policies I like, he's raising a militia or something. I'm not exactly sure what that's all about, but I think some of the things he does, he just does to troll the other side. But there are serious policies going on in the States, and we'll have to see if this turns out something like marijuana or whether it it goes anywhere. Yeah, interesting times. Thanks so much for having me back, Tom. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. If you haven't already, don't forget to download a free copy of my new ebook, It's the Fed Stupid, at itsthefedstupid.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.